0: All right, guys. Welcome to Lesson Twenty Seven, but it's really the first lesson of the Book of Exodus. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty excited. Why? Because we get to reveal to you our new painting. We have a new painting from my cousin Mindy. Uh, If you're just joining us uh, in Genesis, don't worry. I'm not gonna teach you the whole book of Genesis. We had a painting that had an incredible picture of a of a a fruit that had been eaten, and then there was these flowers. But now we have a new painting for the Book of Exodus. Man, what an incredible picture. And so we have one word. You guys know that the book of Genesis, we had the one word which was seed. Well, the second word that we have for the book of Exodus is the word deliverer. And so you're going to see all throughout these 40 chapters of the book of Exodus, you're going to see how does God speak to us through the lamb and through the staff and through the oil and the hyssop. How does God speak to us through the sky? How does he deliver us through these things? And I'm telling you, I'm excited because just like we unpacked Genesis 1 through 50. We're going to do the same thing in Exodus, Exodus 1 through 40. But today you can breathe. We're only going to cover one chapter. Praise the Lord. (laughs) And so you're kind of like, hey, I read this. No problem. It's only 22 verses. So anyway, I'm excited because, you know, Eugene Merrill was a professor at uh, Dallas Seminary when I was there. And he is he one of those individuals that I would consider one of the scholars of, of all of Israel in our time. The guy just knows incredible amounts of the word of God. And then how does that apply to actual tangible Israel today? And, and he was describing the purpose of Exodus. And he said, the purpose of Exodus is to celebrate God's gracious deliverance of his chosen people Israel from Egyptian slavery to freedom of covenant relationship with him. I want to say that one more time. It's to celebrate God's gracious deliverance of his chosen people, Israel, from Egypt. Now, this is, uh, this is crazy. The word exodus, it's an exit. It's a way out. It's a departure because why? They are in slavery. They're going to be in slavery. So we've got to figure out, Lord, how are you going to bring them out of this whole slavery? Well, first of all, they've got to get in it. So let's start off with chapter 1, verse 1. Doesn't that sound cool? I just, it's just kind of like fresh start, same shirt, same beard, but different book of the Bible. Here we go. <laughs> these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Don't worry, I'm not going to draw on all of this, but I, I think this is a cool picture. We just hammered all of this out yesterday. Kevin, if you would, let's plow, plow through this. In verse 2, you have Reuben, you have Simeon, Levi, and Judah. We know that these are the sons of Leah. Then it's going to continue on in verse 3. You have Issachar, Zebulon, and Be- Benjamin. Issachar and Zebulon are sons of, Le- uh, of Leah as well. And then Benjamin is a son of Rachel. So here you have seven sons. And then in verse 4, it gets into Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, sons of Billah and sons of Zilpah. And then the scripture, it continues because that lists all of the brothers. Who's missing right now, you guys? Joseph. Joseph. Why is Joseph not listed? Because he's already in Egypt. So it already says that the total number of Jacob's descendants was 70 and Joseph was already there. Remember the one son Judah, he went ahead of his dad Jacob to prepare the way to meet uh, Joseph because Joseph was already there. Then they're given this land in Goshen. Now this number 70, I I don't want to miss this word 70. 70 is a prominent number all throughout scripture. In fact, in Genesis 10, you see the word 70 nations. In Exodus 24, you see 70 elders of Israel. Uh, in Numbers eleven sixteen, 16, Kevin, I'll let you, if you can, can you go there, please? Numbers eleven 16, you're going to see 70 other elders, 70 men. And so over and over, you're going to see this theme of 70. One of the things I don't want you to miss in scripture is that I remember when I was at Dallas Seminary, like they forced us to slow down and look at all of the details. So this number 70, the 70 descendants, what, what are you talking about? One well, Judges 1, 7, there were 70 uh, submissive kings. Kevin, go to this one. This is kind of an interesting one. 1 Samuel 6, 19. Another number of 70. 1 Samuel 6, 19. These poor guys, it says that God struck down the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 men out of 50,000. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. Again, there's this number 70. The reason I I bring this up is that, well, remember, all right, here's a test. We're going to test you on your tribal knowledge, guys. Who's the most famous son? Tom, this one's going to go for you. From Manasseh. Joshua. No, Gideon. Gideon. Kevin, you can't feed him the wrong information. (laughs) All right. And so Gideon in Judges 8 verse 30, he had, Kevin, can you go there? Judges 8 verse 30. Again, here's this number of 70. Judges 8 verse 30. Gideon had 70 sons. (laughs) You guys, look, I don't mean this in any mean way. I've never met an Amish person that has 70 sons. I have never met a Mormon that's had 70 sons. I have never met a Muslim that's had 70 sons. But Gideon, he has 70 sons, his own offspring. Dude, that guy is busy. (laughs) Ahab had 70 sons. Uh, Jesus, you know, on different versions, 70 or 72. And so I think this, this theme of this number 70... And why I bring that up is because then you have this number 12. You have 12 tribes, and then all of a sudden you have the 12 disciples. I just don't want us to miss. God can do something with a really small amount. He brought 70 into the land of Egypt. And then (laughs) it came to an end. Watch. In verse 6, Then Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. Now, thankfully, thankfully, Uh, They had other family members that it grew because it says in verse 7, but the Israelites were fruitful. They increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Them meaning Israelites. So the 70 people became so fruitful, they increased so rapidly, they multiplied, they became extremely numerous. You guys, the prophetic word that we heard about in all throughout Genesis is starting to happen already in Exodus 1-7. And so to me, it's like, I love watching this unfold. And my question is, do they even know that they're walking out prophecy? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I know we're in the book of Exodus, but Kevin, if you would, this is what's happening. One book later, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you. Scripture says in verse 2, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing and then in verse three, here we go. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This has to happen. God has prophesied through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, that they're going to become an abundance people group. And in fact, at the time of the Exodus, they have said that numbers are 600,000 men. So remember, the whole goal is that they leave this being enslaved. They, and we haven't got to that point yet. But 600,000, and that's 20 years old and older. And it says then at least up to 2 million if you throw in women and children. So that's how many people of of the sand. (laughs) You know how it talks about the numerous is the sand. We're talking up to 2 million people, all because of 70 people decided to go to the land of Goshen to Egypt. Because Joseph was there because he had the food for the family to save the seed. And what happens is as you begin to nail out all these details, it just keeps coming together. And so our word is deliverer for exodus. And you can say, man, that, that's an interesting word. What does that look like? How does it unfold? Remember, if the word exodus is an actual implication that they need to exit, that they need to leave, then somebody needs to help deliver them, get them out of bondage, out of slavery. And the question is, is who? Joseph and all of his brothers, the the heroes, they're gone. So it says in verse 8, a new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. So this Pharaoh, this new king, he didn't care who he was. And all of a sudden he looks around at all these people. And in verse 9, he just says, look, the Israelite people, they're more numerous and powerful than we are. This is, one commentator says, this is a security risk. They could have an upheaval. They could could actually take over who we are. We've got to do something about this. And so all of a sudden in Exodus, you have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman beginning to already start. And it starts in verse nine of Exodus one. And so what he says in verse 10, the new king, he says, let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies. They might fight against us and they might leave the country. And so the king gets nervous. And so here's what he does in verse 11. The Egyptians, they assign taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. I think to me, I don't get excited about what the Israelites had to go through. I think where I get excited when I see this verse right here, I think of Genesis 15, 13. You remember when Abram, he gets a download from the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram in a prophecy, though this for certain, your offspring will be strangers in a land that does not belong to them. That land that doesn't belong to them. You guys, that's Egypt. So all of a sudden, when they crossed into Egypt because jo- Joseph had food, they became so multiple, so numerous that the new king who had forgotten who Joseph was, didn't even know him. And all of those descendants, he just said, well, these guys are a problem. And then it says, go back, Kevin, to Exodus 1.11. Scripture just says this in Exodus 1.11. He's going to oppress them with forced labor. That, my friends, is called Genesis 15, 13, slavery. Kevin, if you can go back. I just, I want to get this picture here. He's going to oppress them with forced labor. Prophecy says they're going to be enslaved. And this is going to start the beginning of 400 years of oppression. Wow. And the Lord told Abram that. And so when you think about, you might remember in, in, uh, in Genesis, when just before Jacob crosses over into Egypt, do you remember he, uh, he is at, I believe, Beersheba, right? Isn't that where he's at? And that the Lord gives him a word. Don't be afraid. It's okay when you go into Egypt because I'm pretty sure the family heritage, when they're sitting around the water cooler, is like, hey, sometime we're going to be slaves in another land. Like, I'm sure that they had this language. And so when he hears he's going to go into another land, Exodus 1.11 says, it's happening. They built two cities Pithom and Ramesses, as supply cities for Pharaoh. So the Israelites are now building supply cities. They're called Pithom and Ramesses. I don't know. When I, when I hear this, I, I think where I get excited is, is how true God is to his word. And in Exodus 1.12, it just continues to unfold more. But the more they oppress them, this is really interesting to me, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Oh, we'll show the Egyptians, hey, let's have more kids. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Is there any other way around this? As they continue to get forced into slavery and do the work of building supply cities, they just kept multiplying. They can't control uh, sexual relations. That's really all it comes down to. And so they multiplied and they spread. And at this point, in one verse, the Egyptians said, I'm dreading the Israelites. I'm sick of these... People. And so it says they, they crush them. The more they oppress them, it says they crush them. That is that they're forcing them, as one commentator says, into submission. Holy cow. In verse thirteen, it says they worked the Israelites ruthlessly. Uh, Kevin, can you go to Ezekiel thirty four four? Ezekiel four four has the same mentality of this. Uh, you have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays or sought the, the lost. Instead, you've ruled them with violence and cruelty. That phrase violence and cruelty can basically just be applied to how the Israelites were being treated ruthlessly, violently and cruelly, uh, cruel with cruelty. And so here you have these Israelites, and it says in verse 14, the new king, he says he made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and in mortar. Rich, you you work with your hands a lot. When you hear you have to work with brick and mortar, is there anything that gets you excited about that, even though you like to work with your hands? Man, not the least. That just seems tiresome, wearisome, sticky, messy. No, I'll pass. I mean, this is this not the woodworking inside, nice and good conditions we're talking outside concrete, brick, mortar and it says in all kinds of field work. And they ruthlessly imposed all of this work on them. Like this is super difficult labor. And then in verse 15, then the king of Egypt he said to the Hebrew midwives, remember what what was the what was the way that the Israelites fought back to the Egyptians? What did they do? Multiply. They're multiplying. Hey, let's have more kids. We'll show those Egyptians. Oh, well, there's little Asher. There's little Naphtali. Oh, look at little Zebulon. Like, I mean, that's probably what they're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and so in verse, verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, One of whom was named Shiprah, and the other Pua. Pua. All right, so he said to the midwives, two of them, Shiprah and Pua. I am not making this stuff up. In verse 16, he says, When you help the Hebrew women give birth, okay, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. So the king had a great idea in his mind. I'm not going to take away the adults. I'm just going to prevent them from growing even more right now. But remember, if God is in this prophetic word, if he says they're going to grow, guess what? They're going to continue to grow. And so in verse 17, these two ladies, the Hebrew midwives. However, I love this image. These midwives, these Hebrew midwives. Did you catch that? They're not Egyptian midwives. So their allegiance is not going to be to the king. And I think that's always interesting to me because I'm always like, hey, they're heroes because they went against the king. Well, their allegiance should be more towards God anyway. So it says they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. I wonder, and I, I just... I wonder if every time they saw a baby being born, they're like, oh, there's another one. Like, you know, what do they say? Shh, don't tell anybody. I mean, you know, like, so Shipra and Pua are like, <laughs> they're like heroes. They really are because they put God first and not not man. And I know that in Romans 13, it talks about how you're supposed to subject yourself to the government, but you don't subject yourself to the government if they're asking you to do things that go against God. Amen. I mean, that's a clear statement if they ask you to kill somebody, you probably shouldn't kill somebody. So the Hebrew midwives, they feared God. Now this, this mentality, this word fearing God, um, it's what one writer says, this is the first time you're ever going to see civil disobedience in in scripture. Like they're going against their authority. They're refusing to obey a law because there's a higher good involved. Uh, (laughs) Man, this is kind of crazy to me. This, um, uh, fearing God mentality. It comes in through Genesis 20, I want to give you a couple illustrations about how the same fear, uh, you know, let me just ask you, there's absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. So there's this mentality. Abraham realizes, remember when he lied about Sarah, uh, being his sister. And so he did, he thought that there was no fear of God involved. And so it's just an illustration. Okay. Genesis 22, verse 12. Remember when Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, Uh, This is for I know that you fear God. Isaac was willing to sacrifice. So there's this fearing God involved. And then in Genesis 42 verse 18. Genesis 42, verse 18, here you have Joseph on the third day. Do you guys remember this? Remember he imprisoned all of his brothers after he said uh, that they were going to send uh, just one and in prison. But in three days, he heard from the Lord. He feared God and he changed his mind. and He said, fine, let's keep one. Simeon's going to stay and the nine are going to go. It came from the fear of the Lord. I'm telling you, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we know that in the New Testament, Kevin, we talked about this. TJ, we talked about this. In the New Testament, Scripture says that Jesus actually is God's wisdom in Colossians. And so if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what you're saying is, strangely enough, when you have a perspective of God, then you're beginning to get a perspective of who Jesus is. I know I just went really fast. That's a whole lot of stretch there. But I'm telling you guys that when the women feared God, they were beginning to understand more of who the Messiah was than they ever even knew. Okay, that was a lot. But I'm telling you guys, there's nothing more when they step, when people step up and they fear God more than what anybody else thinks. You want to know what gets me more excited? Uh, there's some things that the Lord's starting to do in my heart that I'm pretty excited about what He's doing. And it means being more bold for the Lord than I've ever been in my life. But if a Hebrew midwife could reject the king of Egypt, why can't I... Uh, Walk out in faith and not fear. And so in verse 18, the king of Egypt, he summoned the midwives and he asked them, why have you done this? And let the boys live. (laughs) It's kind of a cool picture, isn't it? They found out. Kevin, can you go to Exodus 18, verse 21? Exodus 18, 21. Let's find out if this verse makes sense. It should, but just want to double check. Uh... Yeah, this is cool. So Exodus eighteen, but you should select from all the people able men, God fearing, trustworthy, and hating bribes. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Okay? Now hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna tie this one in. Kevin, go to Exodus twenty twenty. Okay? Twenty twenty. Okay? Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. What I believe was modeled through two Hebrew midwives began to carry out into many people, the Israelites, this fear of the Lord. And just, I think two women stood up against the test of times. And even though they get found out, guess what happens? They said, "He said, why, what have you done? Why have you done this? In verse 19, the, the midwives, they just said this, the Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Not only are these Hebrew midwives super smart and they have the fear of the Lord, they're super. Uh, they're like, they're like shrewd man. They get it. The Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women, for they're they're vigorous and they give birth before a midwife can even get to them. In others, we haven't even had a chance to get there. Well, how do you, how do you refute that? It's pretty awesome. <laughs> did they lie? Ah, uh, maybe maybe not. Rahab did. Uh, Rachel, she said, uh, you know, there's all kinds of scenarios of people just twisting enough, I believe, for the Lord's purpose. And in this case, this one makes sense. In Exodus 1, verse 20, Kevin, if you would, so God was good to the midwives. And you know how, you know how, uh, if people are doing something wrong and God either blesses it or he doesn't, right? Look at Reuben. Reuben decides to sleep with his dad's concubine and then the next thing you know, he doesn't give a whole lot of land and he's not really blessed. Simeon and Levi, they're, they, uh, they, they trick the people and the, uh, the Shechemites to do circumcision and then he's taken away their blessing. So three brothers, their blessings are, are basically taken away. And so then we know that based on their actions. Well, we know based on the midwives' actions, we know that it was good. And I'll get to how I know after this verse. It says, so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Now watch in verse 21. This is awesome. Since the midwives feared God, he then gave them families. How awesome is that? He blessed their work and then he blessed their, their families. Psalm 127, verse 3. Psalm 127, verse 3, you guys know this verse well. You know the chapter probably quite well. But sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord. Children, a reward. They're not to be killed. And I'm just going to go there really quick for a second. Uh, Abortion. Whenever I read Exodus 1, I think of abortion. I think people just treat kids like I'll just throw them into the river. And I have to be careful what I say, but you guys know what I mean. Abortion is not of the Lord. Male or female, boy or girl, children are a reward from the Lord. And the midwives that took a stance against killing kids, God honored. And he gave them a reward. And then it closes out in verse 22. Pharaoh then commanded all his people. So no longer am I going to just trust two Hebrew midwives. He makes a a public declaration to everybody. You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. So now it's a blanket statement across the country, across the country of Egypt. Now you can say, well, how does that fit into uh, how does that fit into being a, a deliverer? How does this fit into uh, you know this painting? How does Exodus one? What I love is is that you know when you go through the gospel, you have to have sin and death. You have to have the bad news in order to understand the good news. Does that make sense? So because we all sin and it leads to death, praise the Lord, though. We've been delivered and been set free through the love of God, which comes through Christ and what He did on the cross. And when we have faith in life, then we can experience uh, new life. We can be delivered. I'm saying the gospel for a reason. What you're going to see in Exodus, okay? What you're going to see is in, in Exodus 1, Okay, you see uh, bondage. You see slavery. Um, Forgive me if I spell this wrong. You see oppression. You see all of this. But at some point, at some point, they have to be delivered. And over the course of 40 chapters we are going to walk through this process just like we walked through the process in Genesis about how the seed was released and how this seed carried out throughout 50 chapters. You're going to start seeing over the course of 40 chapters, how are the people of Israelites, the the Israelites going to be delivered? Well, first of all, there's bad news. The bad news is they're in bondage and slavery and oppression. And it really is just starting until the deliverer comes into play. And that's tomorrow when we begin to unfold Exodus 2 and chapter 3. I'm excited, you guys. I'm excited about what God's going to do through this book. And my prayer is that he encourages you greatly as you continue to study the Word of God.